The scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow before God in prayer. Let us pray. Almighty God, we bow before you and ask that you would break the silence of the heavens and speak to each of us a word from you that draws us closer to your living word, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that brings us life in all its abundance, even in these days. So speak and grant us ears to hear through Jesus, your Son, we pray. Amen. Let me invite you, if you're in the sanctuary, to pull out the insert that you find in your bulletin, the sermon notes, and if you're watching online, there's still time to download them. I'm going to be referring to them uh, quite extensively in a moment or two. In our sermons this winter and spring, we're continuing our series in which we're looking together at Jesus' teaching in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel. Today, in the light of our passage of Scripture that we've just heard in Matthew chapter 5, and in particular in the light of these words, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, that is, our Old Testament. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. In the light of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5, uh, and in the light of other passages, I'd like us to think about Jesus' understanding of the Bible and our understanding of the Bible. And I want to start by sharing a blistering article, critical of the Bible, written by an attorney, Joseph Sommer, for the American Humanist Association. This is on the American Humanist website, critique, a severe critique of the Bible. In the article, he says this, and I think he reflects the view of many people in our society today. He says, humanists reject the claim that the Bible is the word of God and are convinced the book was written solely by humans in an ignorant, superstitious, and cruel age. They believe that because the writers of the Bible lived in an unenlightened era, the book contains many errors errors and harmful teachings. In the United States, The Bible is often hailed as a divinely inspired book. Television and radio carry religious programs praising the Bible as the holy and infallible word of God. The massive and incessant promotion of the Bible significantly influences the beliefs of millions. If the humanist view of the Bible is correct, then millions of Bible believers and churchgoers are wasting much time, money, and energy. The Bible is, in fact, an unreliable authority because, he says, It contains numerous contradictions. Contradictions, he says, begin at the beginning of the Bible in the opening chapters, where there are a couple of different creation stories in the New Testament, 
He says there are a couple of different genealogies of our Lord Jesus, one in Matthew chapter 1 and one in Luke chapter 3, and they don't always agree. Humanists, he goes on to say, reject the Bible because it approves of outrageous cruelty and injustice. God damned the whole human race and cursed the entire creation because of the acts of just two people. And he killed Egyptian babies at the time of the Passover. These verses expose the biblical God as having the morals of a sociopathic mass murderer. Wow. And sadistic tendencies employing a variety of means to torment and kill people. Further, the Bible is contrary to science. It has stories about a tree bearing fruit which, when eaten, gives knowledge of good and evil. Another tree whose fruit bestows immortality, a talking snake, a talking donkey, a voice coming from a burning bush, rods burning into, turning into serpents, water changing into blood, water coming from a rock, a dead man receiving uh, life when his corpse touched the bones of a prophet. There are false prophecies in the Bible, inaccurate statements about history. And then he concludes by saying this. By treating this mistake-ridden book as the word of God, humanity has been led down many paths of error and misery throughout history. And in too many ways, the Bible continues to produce such results. Well, there's an onslaught. There's a criticism, full-blown, full-blooded of the Bible which reflects, I think, what many people in our world think about this book, which is at the center of our faith and which is before me on this pulpit today and in your pews around about you. And as Christians, we need to be able to address such critiques or at least to have some reasons, some reasons why we and the church should continue to place the Bible at the center of so much of our liturgy and our worship continue to read this particular book above all other books when it comes to matters of faith and worship. And this morning, what I want to do is a couple of things, a couple of things that I hope will lead us in the direction of being able to address such questions as these raised by uh, the Humanist Society and by, by others. And I want to, to do so uh, by looking, first of all, at what I think is one of the best short Christian explanations of the importance of the Bible that I can find. One of the best short Christian explanations of the importance, the authority, and the relevance of the Bible that I can find. And then I want us to go inside the Bible to see how Jesus used and understood it as it shaped his life, surely the life of the best man, the most divine man who ever lived. So let's start with what I think is the best short Christian statement about the ongoing authority and relevance of the Bible. And not surprisingly, perhaps, we can find this in our Presbyterian Church Book of Confessions, which is part of our Constitution. The statement I'd like us to think about, which is printed on the insert in your bulletin, and you can download it as well, comes from what we call the Confession of 1967. The Confession of 1967. Part of our Constitution. Now, I need to be clear. The Confession of 1967 doesn't have a line-by-line -line refutation of critiques like Summer's critique, the one that I have just read for you. But instead, it does what I think is more important than that. It speaks about the purposes of the Bible. The limited and specific purposes of the book. And claims that the Bible 
not necessarily perfect in everything, but it's perfect for the purpose for which God intends it. It is perfect for the purpose in which God intends it. It makes no claim for perfection in every way. And if you know just a little bit of New Testament Greek, you know that the Apostle Paul's Greek is not perfect Greek. There is imperfection even in the Greek right there. But for the purpose that God intends are, that's what needs to be kept in mind. What this does, for me at least, is to say that the critiques of somebody like Summers, are, it's not so much that they're wrong or they're observing things which are wrong all the way around, but actually they're beside the point, that there's something else going on with this book that needs to be central in our hearts and our minds, even as this kind of critique continues around about us. So what I want us to do, and this is in a way a little bit more like a lecture this morning than a sermon, I want us to read through the statement in the Confession of 67, and I'm going to make some comments along the way, so that you have in your hands something you can take with you and look at after the service is over today, and ponder as you think not only about the role of the Scripture in the church or in the life of Jesus, but in your life as well. So this is how the section of the Confession of 1967 begins when it comes to the Bible. Begins with this <clears throat> The one sufficient revelation of God is Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate. God wants to be made known, to be revealed. How critical is that? Not just in silence and glorious splendor out there, but wants to be known. And the, the central place for knowing God is in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what we've talked about through Advent and Chris, Christmas God entering our world. And in that entering, we can see God in a way that we can understand and grasp. Jesus is the central way by which we can know who God is and what God wants. The one sufficient revelation of God is Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate, to whom the Holy Spirit bears unique and authoritative witness through the Scriptures which are received and obeyed as the Word of God written. The purpose of the book. Primarily, and there are other purposes, but the primary purpose is to point us to Jesus. This is what the book does. Not intended to be a scientific textbook. Not intended to have the standards of accuracy that we in the 21st century expect of this, that, or the next thing. But to point us to Jesus. And in this regard, the confession says the scriptures are not a witness amongst others, but the witness without parallel pointing us and drawing us to our Lord Jesus Christ. This book is unique in that. The church has received the books of the Old and New Testaments as prophetic and apostolic testimony in which it hears the word of God and by which its faith and obedience are nourished and regulated. We don't throw out the Old Testament just because it's complicated and ancient, though at times it is complicated and it's certainly ancient. But it is part of the testimony which leads us towards Jesus Christ. The New Testament is the recorded testimony of the apostles, those who knew Jesus or those who knew those who knew Jesus, those who were close to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, and the sending of the Holy Spirit to the church. The Old Testament bears witness to God's faithfulness in his covenant with Israel. This too is critical. A critical part of the purpose of the scripture is to say that the God who made the universe, is interested in relationship with people like you and me and in committed 
covenant relationship with us. How staggering is that? That this is the God in whom we believe. The Old Testament bears witness to God's faithfulness and his covenant with Israel, God's ancient people. And that's going to extend now to you and me who are his people. Uh, 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 and points the way to the fulfillment of God's purpose in Christ. The Old Testament is indispensable to understanding the new and is not itself fully understood without the new. In other words, yes, there's complicated stuff in the Old Testament, but the lens through which we are to read it, and everybody reads everything through some kind of a lens, is to be our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible is to be interpreted in the light of its witness to God's work of reconciliation in Christ. Jesus is the center. Again and again this is said. He is the protagonist of the drama. And if you don't get that right at the beginning, then the rest will all be muddied as well, more muddied than it might be otherwise. The scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of human beings, so uniquely inspired. And here's the remarkable thing, but that does not obliterate the humanity of the book. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life and my life, the Holy Spirit does not obliterate our individuality or our humanity, but indeed enhances it. So in a sense, we become more human as we were made to be. And you remain you and I remain me. And the Apostle Paul, in writing his letters, remains Paul, not James. John, in writing his gospel, remains John and not Mark. Isaiah, in his prophecy, has the characteristics of Isaiah and those who followed in Isaiah's footsteps and not of Jeremiah. The character, the human character, is maintained in Scripture. The Scriptures given under the guidance of the Holy Spirit are nevertheless the words of human beings conditioned by the language, the thought forms, the literary fashions, and the places and times at which they were written. They reflect views of life, history, and the cosmos, which were then current. Theologians call this God's accommodation to us. God doesn't speak in ethereal terms let's say, from the year 2050 to us with things that we cannot understand, but speaks into our human context in ways that we can understand. He comes to us and accommodates himself to us where we are in history and in time. And so we look back to those to whom God spoke in ancient times, and it's hard at times, but God speaks to them, and we, as we read carefully the book, can find him still speaking to us. The church, therefore, has an obligation to approach the scriptures with literary and historical understanding. As God has spoken the divine word in diverse cultural situations, the church is confident that God will continue to speak through the scriptures in a changing world. This is the miracle of the scripture that God continues to use this book even though the world should change. And in every form of human culture across the world, how amazing that this book translates. God's word is spoken to the church today where the scriptures are faithfully preached, attentively read, in dependence on the illumination of the Holy Spirit and with readiness to receive their truth and direction. So here's a statement that balances the humanity and the divinity of the book, as we see that balanced in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, calls upon us 
to see divine inspiration as not obliterating the human face of the book that God has given to us, but somehow still creating something unique as a channel of God's grace leading us to Christ. Here's a statement that causes us to remember the central purpose and message of the book, the lens, the primary lens through which we are to read the book and not to get lost in the weeds. Here's a statement that causes us to expect that God speaks. God longs to be revealed and does so even through this book to this very day when we read the book with care and prayer. With care and prayer and expectation. We never, of course, have a safeguard against the abuse and the misreading of Scripture that so many people want to have and accuse the book of being useless because it has been abused throughout time, as clearly it has been abused throughout time. But the fact is, this is true of every good thing in life, that it can be abused. So somebody makes an airplane, and the airplane is incredible. It brings the world together. It takes me or you to family members wherever they may live. But somebody can come along and take that plane and turn it into a missile and destroy buildings and destroy hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Yeah, that can be done with what is good. Computers and the web can be used to facilitate incredible advances in medical science. We're so grateful for all of those things, but those same computers can be used to perpetrate propaganda and pornography and threaten democracy. Nothing exists which cannot be abused. And the Bible is not exempt from that. But then, and this is my second point, then there is no question that in terms of the influence for good of this book, the one person who has influenced history for good more than any other person, our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was influenced by his Bible, our Old Testament, more than anything, again and again and again, we find this to be true, so that goodness, incredible goodness, and self-sacrifice, and the care for the blessing of others emerged from this very book, which at times is complicated. It was in his Bible, our Old Testament, in the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, that Jesus found the commands that lay at the center of his teaching, love God, love neighbor, not invented by Jesus, but from the book that he read from childhood. It was in his Bible, our Old Testament, that Jesus found his life's mission statement from the prophet Isaiah in the 61st chapter. Jesus goes home to Nazareth, his hometown, and on the Sabbath day he is on worship. He is keeping the Sabbath commandment. He is in worship. And he reads the scripture from Isaiah. He stands up to read. We read this in Luke chapter 4. And the scroll, of the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. This is what Jesus did. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, what Jesus did. Recovery of sight to the blind, what Jesus did. To let the oppressed go free, what Jesus did. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled 
in your hearing, in me, in my life. And this is what I came to do. The position description for his life came from his Bible. It was in his Bible, which he had memorized, that he found the right weapon he needed to resist the testing and the temptations of the devil when for 40 days he was in the wilderness of Judea. And the devil came on to him, Satan came on to him again and again, again and again. Jesus quoted scripture at him. He did have no Bible in his hand. It was in his head from Deuteronomy. It is written, says Jesus, by God in scripture. It is written. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written. Worship the Lord your God and God alone. Serve. It was in his Bible that Jesus found God's rules for life in the Ten Commandments, not abolishing them or ignoring them, and this was core to what he taught in our passage in Matthew chapter 5. Have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So Jesus intensifies the Ten Commandments, does not throw them out. He takes what could be just outward laws and he brings them into the depth of our being. You have heard it said, he said. Referencing the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you get angry, just watch out, be careful. Referencing the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, you look lustfully on a woman, watch out, be careful. Referencing the eighth commandment, you shall not swear falsely. But I say to you, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be transparent in your communication. Referencing the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. He commands, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Or the third commandment, not to abuse God's name, the beginning of the Lord's prayer, is the positive aspect of that. May your name be hallowed and honored. But I believe the commandment is in mind. And then the first commandment about having no gods before God. You cannot serve God and money. You've got to make your choice. What's first? What is your number one object of worship. And it was in his Bible that Jesus read about the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 9, that the Messiah would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And in his Bible, he found the words to express his anguish on the cross. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't an arbitrary statement. It was a quotation from the 22nd Psalm. In his mind, in his agony, in his heart, in his being, in his agony, he quotes from the Psalm. And the Psalm expresses his agony, but it also expresses his faith. It is not you, God, you, God, you, God. It is still my God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? We, we believe it is because he bore our sins in his body on the cross. That sense of forsakenness came. It was for us. It was in love. But the pain was excruciating. But the word was from his Bible, the scripture. So Jesus saw his Bible as pointing to him and to his life. And he read his Bible. And he memorized his Bible. And he lived his Bible. And he taught his Bible. And those who followed him did the same. And they completed what for us is our Bible by pointing to Jesus in the Gospels and in the, the letters and in the book of Revelation and in the Acts of the Apostles 
so that we too could meet face to face the supreme revelation of God in the person of Jesus. And to do this, well, they read their Bible too. And they memorized their Bible too. And they lived out their Bible as well. And they taught their Bible so that throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament becomes real and alive with the focus on Jesus. And we, we have been called to follow in their steps. And this is the premise of my whole call and my life and why I stand before you Sunday after Sunday with no regrets whatsoever. My expectation is the powerful expectation expressed at the end of that section of the Confession of 1967, and I urge you to look at it again. In this, I am confident that as God has spoken the divine word in diverse cultural situations, God will continue to speak to you through the scriptures in a changing world. This miracle I expect to take place every week. Indeed, I'm confident that God's word will be spoken when the scriptures are faithfully preached, attentively read, in dependence on the illumination of the Holy Spirit and with readiness to receive their truth and direction. Are you ready? God will speak. God will. Problems in the Bible? Sure. Problems in the church? Sure. Problems in our lives? Sure. This is the world, the real world within which we live. But does that exclude the divinity of the scripture? No, not one bit. The uniqueness? No, what one bit. The work of the Holy Spirit to inspire? Not one bit. But to be read and handled with care and expectation and prayer. May God speak to me and you and all of us and to his world that he loves through this book, the world that he loves and to which he sent his son. Let us pray. Holy God, look down upon us. We need to have our lives re-centered on our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would use every means possible to this end. But especially today, we pray that the scriptures, the Bible, would be a tool in your hand for this purpose, for good and not for evil. Amen.